Welcome. This episode originally dropped on January 3rd, 2021, but it didn't sound very good because I had a lame microphone and hadn't really learned how to read stuff or use the editing software. I worry that some people who listen to the early episodes give up because of the sound quality. I'm therefore re-recording this episode on October 20th, 2022 in Austin, Texas, with a very small number of edits to smooth out the cadence, adopt some of the style that I use in the later episodes, and all that stuff. So here you go. Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast. I'm your host, Jack Henneman. And this episode is The Americans Before Columbus Part 1, the first substantive episode of this podcast series. Please listen to the short episode zero, introductions and such, to get a sense of what we are doing here. On Wednesday, October 12, 1492, Christopher Columbus and his three famous ships made landfall on the chain of islands we now call the Bahamas. The Admiral of the Ocean Sea and his crew became the first people with the knowledge of writing, and therefore the capacity to record history, to see and describe American Indians for the benefit of people in the Eastern Hemisphere. We will spend some time with Columbus in the near future. For now, suffice it to say that the first Columbus Day set off a cascade that included by some measures the greatest demographic disaster in human history and a massive explosion of human population, biological and cultural exchange, and wealth. In order to understand the impact of the Columbian exchange on the history of the Americans, we need to spend some time with the foundational peoples of the Americas, the Indians of the Western Hemisphere as they lived before the Europeans arrived to stay for good. Don't miss the qualifying dodge in that sentence. To stay for good distinguishes the expeditions of Columbus and subsequent explorers from predecessors, Vikings and such, who might otherwise have a claim on the discovery, from their point of view, of the New World. The housekeeping question is, what to call the first Americans? This is a fraught topic with plenty of back and forth just in my own life, from Indians to Native Americans to First Peoples and so forth. For any number of reasons, the term Indian seems to be the most favored in the current moment, and that's the word I will use. Charles Mann, in an appendix to his fabulous book, 1491, Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, addresses the question forthrightly and lands on Indians, who might argue with Charles Mann. That said, I expect that there will be times when out of either ignorance or convenience, I use terms that are not technically correct or even considered respectful in all circles, but which have the benefit of familiarity or of being easy to pronounce and understand. Trust me when I say, no offense is intended. Man's book examines the Indian and natural history in the entire Western Hemisphere. And as I'm sure you know, most of the pre-Columbian population and architectural trappings of Indian civilization were in Mexico and Central and South America. We will touch on those even though they were outside our geographical focus because they had a significant impact on the Indians occupying the future United States and therefore the Europeans and Africans and Asians who came here. There are questions about pre-Columbian Indian societies that bear heavily 
on the history of the future United States and others that are fascinating in and of themselves, but which are not deeply germane to the direction of this podcast. For example, the recent revisions to our understanding of the vast and urbanized Indian societies in Mesoamerica, which encompasses parts of today's Mexico and the Central American countries, and ancient South America, are startling and engrossing. Mayan Indians seem to have invented the concept of zero centuries before mathematicians in actual India, and maybe more than a thousand years before Europeans understood it. But for our purposes, agricultural and perhaps political innovations are the most significant. That and the fact of the Indians just being there, which had a huge impact on the history of the United States, as we will see again and again. Depending on your age, the version of the Indians that you learned about in school may well be profoundly out of date. Charles Mann points to three areas in which our understanding of pre-Columbian Indian societies has, in the last generation or so, been comprehensively revised. Indian demography, meaning the size and range of Indian populations. Indian origins, that is, when did Indians first come to the New World and by what means? And Indian ecology, meaning the impact of Indians on their environment, including the domestication of plants and animals. In this episode, we will tackle Indian demography and ecology, both of which are germane to the broader subject, and refer you back to Mann's book for his excellent treatment of the raging controversy over the origin of the Indians, which has had developments even since Mann published his book. Looming over these three big topics is the overarching question of Indian agency. Did the Indians live lightly on the land in harmony with God's creation and painting with all the colors and the wind and such? Or did they shape their world with every bit as much purpose and industry as Eastern Hemisphere peoples? Here's a useful rule to live by. When offered the Disney version of events and an alternative, pick the alternative. For the better part of 500 years, the prevailing opinion of the well-informed Westerner, meaning Europeans and their descendants and the readers of their histories, was that the pre-Columbian Indians lived lives in something akin to Thomas Hobbes' state of nature. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Man describes this view in its various forms as Holmberg's mistake, named rather unfairly as man admits, after a doctoral candidate named Alan Holmberg, who studied a small, impoverished Indian tribe called the Siriano, living in the Beni region of central Bolivia during the early 1940s. Here, man says, quote, The Siriano, Holmberg reported, were among the most culturally backward peoples of all the world. Living in constant want and hunger, he said, they had no clothes, no domestic animals. No musical instruments, not even rattles and drums, nor art or design, except necklaces of animal teeth, and almost no religion. The Siriano conception of the universe was almost completely uncrystallized. Incredibly, they could not count beyond three or make fire. They carried it, he wrote, from camp to camp in a burning brand. 
Their poor lean-tos, made of haphazardly heaped palm fronds, were so ineffective against rain and insects that the typical band member undergoes many a sleepless night during the year. Crouched over meager campfires during the wet, buggy nights, the Siriano were living exemplars of primitive humankind, the quintessence of man in the raw state of nature, as Holmberg put it. For millennia, he thought, they had existed almost without change in a landscape unmarked by their presence. Back to me. Holmberg, man reports, was a careful and compassionate researcher whose detailed observations of Siriano life remain valuable today. Nevertheless, he was wrong about the Siriano, and he was wrong about the place they inhabited, wrong in a way that's instructive, even exemplary. Man again, quote, Before Columbus, Holmberg believed, both the people and the land had no real history— Stated so baldly, this notion that the indigenous peoples of the Americas floated changelessly through the millennia until 1492 may seem ludicrous. But flaws in perspective often appear obvious only after they're pointed out. In this case, they took decades to rectify. Back to me. Since the 1960s, we've learned at least two very important things about the Siriano and the land that they occupied when Alan Holmberg studied them in the 1940s. First, the Siriano Holmberg studied with the last remnant of a much larger population that smallpox had all but destroyed in the 1920s. By the time Holmberg came along, more than 95% had died, a population reduction so severe that the Siriano had passed through a genetic bottleneck. The tribe's gene pool got so small that interbreeding increased the frequency and severity of genetic shortcomings. Modern anthropologists have discovered, for example, that the Siriona were, later in the 20th century, 30 times more likely to be born with club feet than typical human populations. No wonder Holmberg thought they were pathetic. Second, the Beni, the region that the Siriano inhabited, is not quite what it seems from the ground. By the miracle of flight, and particularly aerial photography, we now know that the Benny was, in days of old, the site of considerable landscaping and architecture, indicating large, complex, purposeful societies. Quoting Mann again, in addition to building roads, causeways, canals, dikes, reservoirs, mounds, raised agricultural fields, and possibly ball courts, the Indians who lived there before Columbus trapped fish in the seasonally flooded grassland. The trapping was not a matter of a few isolated natives with nets, but a society-wide effort in which hundreds or thousands of people fashioned dense, zigzagging networks of earthen fish weirs, fish corralling fences, among the causeways. There's a lot more of that sort of thing. The proposed conclusion, of course, is that we now know that the Benny like any number of other places in the Americas, was shaped by relatively large populations of Indians organized by leaders to build significant things that left a lasting impression on the land. Holmberg's mistake writ small is one poor conclusion drawn from incomplete facts that the impoverished and incompetent Indians Holmberg encountered in remote central Bolivia in the early 1940s were anything like the people who had lived there in ancient times. 
Holmberg missed the demographic disaster that had preceded him. He did not see that he was studying the shattered remnant of a society rather than an artifact frozen in time. And he could not have seen, nobody had done at that point, the archaeological evidence of a lost civilization that long predated his own anthropological work. Now man drives the point home, quote, The Benny was no anomaly. For almost five centuries, Holmberg's mistake, the supposition that Native Americans lived in an eternal, unhistoried state, held sway in scholarly work, and from there fanned out to high school textbooks, Hollywood movies, newspaper articles, environmental campaigns, romantic adventure books, and silkscreen t-shirts. It existed in many forms and was embraced both by those who hated Indians and those who admired them. Holmberg's mistake explained the colonists' view of most Indians as incurably vicious barbarians. Its mirror image was the dreamy stereotype of the Indian as noble savage. Positive or negative, in both images, Indians lacked what social scientists call agency. They were not actors in their own right, but passive recipients of whatever windfalls or disasters happenstance put in their way. Back to me. Man serves up many examples of both sides of Holmberg's mistake. The nice version of Indians who never do anything include Henry David Thoreau's pursuit of Indian wisdom and its relationship with nature, all the way to the famous public service advertisement from the first Earth Day in 1970 that featured the old Indian with a single tear weeping on account of litter and pollution. We'll put a link to that ad on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, for our listeners born after, say, 1965. Anyway, nobody is for litter and pollution, but the Indian motif embeds the assumption that they lived lightly on the land when, in fact, they were building large edifices, establishing cities, hunting animals, in some cases to extinction, setting fires to clear their fields, engineering crops, trading across vast distances, and introducing alien species from one environment to another, of which more in a bit. In popular culture, nothing embodies the silly natural Indian trope more cringingly than Disney's Pocahontas movie, which might be the biggest affront to both Indians and early colonial history ever committed. The wolf only cries to the blue corn moon because Indians engineered maize in Mexico and spread it all over the Western Hemisphere millennia before the first European boots hit the Bahamian beaches. That's the noble side of the no-agency coin. The savage side was just as blinkered, and if anything more cynical because it was used to justify European expansion into the continent. George Bancroft, in some respects the founder of the history profession in the United States, you could do worse than read the winners of the Bancroft Prize each year, argued in 1834, that before Europeans arrived, North America was an unproductive waste. Its only inhabitants were a few scattered tribes of feeble barbarians, destitute of commerce and of political connection. Mann traces the subsequent academic work in the same vein and shows that college and high school history textbooks generally emphasize the savage over the noble. The Indians were, at best, backward. 
pretty bad, right? Maybe even racist. Now, here's an example of presentism, something we're going to try to avoid in this podcast, even if we do not always succeed. Presentism is the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. The great University of Texas historian Alfred Crosby, the scholar who coined the term Columbian Exchange to describe the extraordinary swap of biology, technology, agronomy, and culture between the eastern and western hemispheres following Columbus, pointed out that the historians who viewed Indians as savages without agency, noble or otherwise, lived in an era when, in man's words, the driving force of events seemed to be great leaders of European descent, and when white societies appeared to be overwhelming non-white societies everywhere. Those ideas began to lose their persuasiveness, especially among intellectuals in good faith, with the rapid rise of the Japanese to challenge the West during the first four decades of the 20th century, and then the collapse of the European colonial empires after World War II. Suddenly, the scholars of the West began to look at everybody differently, and the Indians were among them. In addition, historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists got a batch of new tools with which to work. New technologies such as carbon-14 dating, ice core sampling, aerial and satellite photography, genetics, and soil assays all shed new light on pre-Columbian societies, as did the new disciplines of demography, climatology, epidemiology, and evolutionary biology who couldn't see the world differently, who couldn't then see that the American noble savage was neither, but was instead a purposeful technologist bent on changing his world, just as Americans and Asians and Africans were already known to do. So what did that world look like? Charles Mann imagines an aerial flight over all of the Americas in the centuries before Columbus. The entire passage, and indeed the entire book, is well worth your time. For our purposes, man's imagined flight over North America is as good a description from imagined altitude as we might find. Continue the flight to what is now the U.S. Southwest, past desert farms and cliff dwellings, to the Mississippian societies in the Midwest. Not long ago, archaeologists with new techniques unraveled the tragedy of Cahokia, near modern St. Louis, which was once the greatest population center north of the Rio Grande. Construction began in about 1000 AD on an earthen structure that would eventually cover 15 acres and rise to a height of about 100 feet, higher than anything around it for miles. Atop the mound was the temple for the divine kings who arranged for the weather to favor agriculture. As if to Lend them support, fields of maize rippled out from the mound almost as far as the eye could see. Continue north to the least settled land, the realm of hunters and gatherers. Portrayed in countless U.S. history books and Hollywood westerns, the Indians of the Great Plains are the most familiar to non-scholars. Demographically speaking, they lived in the hinterlands, remote and thinly settled. Their lives were as far from wary or Toltec lords as the nomads of Siberia were from the Grandes of Beijing. Their material cultures were simpler, too. No writing, no stone plazas, no massive temples. 
although Plains groups did leave behind about 50 rings of rock that are reminiscent of Stonehenge. The relative lack of material goods has led some to regard these groups as exemplifying an ethic of living lightly on the land. Perhaps, but North America was a busy, talkative place. By 1000 AD, trade relationships had covered the continent for more than a thousand years. Mother of Pearl from the Gulf of Mexico had been found in Manitoba and Lake Superior Copper in Louisiana. Back to me. In the Northeast, archaeologists have found beads from Florida, obsidian from the Rockies, and mica from Tennessee. North American free trade, it seems, long predated the United States, the Spanish, and English for the very idea of national borders. What could be more natural if natural is your thing? The aforementioned wary and Toltec lords, it should be said, built vast cities and substantial civilizations in Peru and Mexico and Central America, the exploration of which are reason enough to read man's book. Now let's take a look at pre-Columbian Indian societies, populations, and ecology, particularly in North America. It all starts with glottochronology, a method of linguistics that estimates how long ago two or more languages branched from their common ancestor. Applying glottochronology to the Algonquin languages of the tribes in the Northeast, linguists believe, tentatively at least, that they all date back to a common ancestor language that appeared in the Northeast before the Romans ran Bethlehem and some indeterminate number of centuries before the baby Jesus was laid in that manger. Per Charles Mann's digestion of the relevant research, the ancestral language may, there are any number of qualifiers there, derive from what is known as the Hopewell culture. The Hopewell culture originated in the Midwest. It's named for the owner of a farm in Ohio where there are big geometric mounds built by that tribe with that ancestral language. The Hopewell culture seems to have spread not by conquest, but, again, perhaps, by evangelical religion. Mann analogizes the distribution of the Hopewell religion and culture to the spread of Islam and Arabic along with it throughout the Middle East in its early days, although that involved a fair bit more conquest than is believed of the Hopewell culture, so perhaps that analogy fails. We do know that the Hopewell culture traded widely and accounted for the extended geographical dispersion of all sorts of goods. Even after Hopewell culture per se declined still centuries before Christ, its trading networks persisted across the continent. Remember the Gulf oyster, mother of pearl in Canada and Lake Superior copper in Louisiana? That was the Hopewell culture in action. Within the next thousand years or so, hunter-gatherer beneficiaries of Hopewell culture, trade, and language began to adopt agriculture, the most quickly in New England's river valleys. These tribes, which became the tribes of the Algonquin, cultivated the three sisters of maize, beans, and squash in almost continuous settlements along the Connecticut, Charles, and other New England rivers. Here we might take a moment and talk about these three critical crops. Rather than labor over it, the first three paragraphs from the Wikipedia entry do the job very nicely, with a few tweaks from me to make it sound a little better. The three sisters are the three main agricultural crops of various indigenous groups in North America, 
winter squash, maize, and climbing beans. Originating in Mesoamerica, these three crops were carried northward up the river valleys over generations, far afield to the Mandan and Iroquois, and it must be said Algonquin, who among others used these three sisters for food and trade. In a technique called companion planting, the three crops are planted close together. Flat-top mounds of soil are built for each cluster of crops. Each mound is about 12 inches high and 20 inches wide, and several maize seeds are planted close together in the center of each mound. In parts of the Atlantic Northeast, rotten fish or eels are buried in the mound with the maize seeds to act as additional fertilizer when the soil is poor. When the maize is six inches tall, beans and squash are planted around the maize, alternating between the two kinds of seeds. The process to develop this agricultural knowledge took place over five to six and a half thousand years. Squash was domesticated first, with maize second and then beans being domesticated. Squash was first domesticated eight to ten thousand years ago. The three crops benefit from each other. The maize provides a structure for the beans to climb, eliminating the need for poles. The beans provide the nitrogen to the soil that the other plants use, and the squash spreads along the ground, blocking the sunlight, helping prevent the establishment of weeds. The squash leaves also act as a living mulch, creating a microclimate to retain moisture in the soil, and the prickly hairs of the vine deter pests. Corn, beans, and squash contain complex carbohydrates, essential fatty acids, and all nine amino acids. Meaning, of course, that if you eat these three foods, you can get by for a long time. These crops transformed global agriculture after the Columbian Exchange. There are probably billions of people alive on the planet only on account of them, particularly maize and beans, and a few others like cassava. More about all that in a future podcast, I'm sure. Well, this seems like a good place to conclude today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I certainly enjoyed making it and have several more in the can to roll out over the next few weeks, including the very exciting part two of the Americans Before Columbus, in which we will look at the Algonquin tribes along the northeast coast stretching through today's Rhode Island, all the way through Canada's maritime provinces. Please consider subscribing on your podcast app so you know immediately when a new episode becomes available. More importantly, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, and questions by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Thank you, and until next time.